0: Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. Each week, we will compare notes from the week's events, connect the dots to past and present experiences and racial patterns in America, and connect with community members from many different perspectives who are themselves trying to make sense of this moment. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dangerous Group and executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora.
1: And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist and founder of Black Press.
0: It is certain in any case that ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. James Baldwin. This past week saw several demonstrations from silent marches to clergy prayer rallies for justice. We also saw that the city of Minneapolis has settled the civil case with the Floyd family for $27 million, the largest civil settlement of its kind in history. And as we watched the jury selection process, one thing became clear to me, at least having experience or nuanced understanding of the experiences of black and brown bodies is proving to be a liability for your selection on this jury. As I listened to Miss George's coverage of the jury selection process, I couldn't help but feel a sense that even though the trial has not begun, another trial was at play. Many watching could feel when a juror's responses were likely going to disqualify them. It was like watching a sick game show where proximity to any strong opinions or life experiences could get you kicked off the island. Inherence, however, was a disheartening pattern. To quote Mr. Mel Reeves, Honest black people will have a hard time getting seated on this jury, regardless of your ability to pass impartial judgment based on the evidence. That quote is something that is absolutely on my mind as we begin our discussion today. So, Miss Georgia, let's compare notes. You've been covering this through the week, um, and of course, the new the new information that we got today, the day that we're recording about the settlement. Um, let's let's do some recap. What's what have you seen this week as it relates to the case?
1: Well, I think, you know, the biggest thing is the dissection of the jury selection process and how that has contributed to systematic racism in the pursuit of justice. And not just in this case, but in every case that failed to deliver justice for black and brown people. I I think that uh, for the first time, people are really paying attention uh, for the first time people are sitting down and understanding and dissecting how this process works and the the summary of last week was Mel Reeves's quote honest black folks ain't gonna get a seat on this jury <laughs> that that summarizes it if you're li- if you're a lying black folk you might have a chance but if you tell them the truth like we heard the African-American mother speak Speak truthfully about seeing a horrific video of the death of a black man. And she admitted that she cannot unsee what she saw. But her admission of truth and transparency. Uh, was the same truth for anyone else. Every other single person who has been selected for the the jury so far has admitted that they've seen a clip or they've seen the video. Can they unsee what they saw? No, they can't. So why is one standard held for uh, a black woman as a potential juror? The standard is she's supposed to unsee what she saw But nobody else has to. And so I I do think that when you look at jury selection being the framework, the foundation for the outcome of this trial, uh, I think that everyone is talking about the jury selection. And the last thing I'll add is uh, the jury questionnaire. I did have Hmm. a chance to get my hands on the jury questionnaire. There are 69 questions. It's sectioned off into uh, six different uh, pieces. And at the center of this questionnaire is how do you feel about Black Lives Matter? And how do you feel about Blue Lives Matter? And the one thing that really resonated with me about these two questions is that when when these potential jurors were asked, how do they feel about BLM or BLM? I didn't really hear anyone draw the point that there there's no such thing as a blue life. Hmm. That at the end of the day, an officer can take off their blue uniform and be who they are. But at the end of the day, my black brothers and sisters cannot take off their skin. And so to look at a questionnaire and and see that it it is designed in a way that is resulting in what feels like bias, racial bias for uh, the type of people who are being selected for this jury.
0: It, you know, your that point is so is so poignant, and it stands out as you listen to the folks who have been selected. That proximity to um, a viewpoint of of uh, cultural respect for law enforcement or authority is not something to investigate in a trial about an officer who who overstepped their bounds. We have the video evidence to prove it. However, a casual consciousness. Of the experience of blackness in society, the woman that you spoke to earlier, who who said I can't unsee what's in the video, answered absolutely forthright that I, yes, I can follow the rules, and in fact, I can even hear the incredulity in her voice when I think it was the judge, um, you know, questioned whether or not um, she'd be able to follow the instructions given by the judges. She's just like, but yeah,
1: they didn't believe her the right. same way Derek Chauvin didn't believe George Floyd when he said, I can't breathe.
0: Mm. And so then does that mean, am I I wondering to you as you covered all this, I'm getting a sense that um, you're, in order to be seated in this jury, you have to be neutral in the face of a video of a man kneeling on somebody's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Like that has to be part of your your understanding of the world in order for you to get seated.
1: I'm glad you pointed that out because it, it does look like they're, Focusing on finding people to be neutral about that side of what happened But Mm. they're not looking for people to be neutral about policing Mm. Because we know that one of the jurors has a friend who is employed for the minneapolis police department Mm. How how is that not a red flag for? someone Someone's ability to be impartial. How does that happen
0: there's a reward for being disconscious. That our legal system it has it baked into it a reward for being disconscious of the experience of certain groups of folks, and that consciousness becomes a liability for participation. And none of those have go to the central question that the legal system is asking for the jury selection and your ability to be, uh, to take the evidence, weigh the evidence, be impartial to the end, and do what the evidence says to do. On those questions. A lot of the folks who were stricken, particularly those who had seemed to have a consciousness around um, the experiences of, of, of black and brown bodies in this country, um, a lot of them were able to affirmatively say um, that they could that they could take the evidence and, and follow the instructions and be a, a participant but their proximity to to, to black lives disqualified them. Like, it makes that is
1: think, uh, it makes ahead. me think of a chant that you hear oftentimes at the protests. They say the whole and I'm not going to use the profanity, but the whole Mm -hmm. dang system is guilty as heck. Mm -hmm. And this is this is a manifestation of that. When when we talk about systematic racism, this is what we mean. There is racism embedded in the American jury selection process. And we are all seeing it play out, not just Americans, but the world is seeing it play out.
0: You know, to, to that point in the juror selection, um, one of my fraternity brothers is, is a, a member of the Juror Project out of Louisiana, um, uh, Will Snowden, and he uh, posted a video um, that talks a little bit about some of their concerns with jury selection across the country. And one of the things baked into it, to the systemic point that you were bringing up, um, is how we get to select the juries in the first place, right? We've got voting records, We've got, um, you know, whether you in the state of Minnesota in particular, um, if you register and get a state or official ID of some sort is another way to get you onto the roles. A lot of the re- things that we use to even select a pool are um, areas for which we have underrepresentation and in, 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 in disparity uh, in the numbers of people of color in particular who, are, who would be selected in the first place. And so... We not only see what's happening in the selection process, but before we even get to the selection process, those barriers are starting to work and be at play. And so, um, you know, what does it mean for a system to ask that question and investigate itself for those types of disparities? Um, and to my knowledge, never once has the this ideological question of blue lies, black lies been in a jury questionnaire. Um, is, have you uncovered any other jury selection processes that have asked those questions
1: i have not i do know that there is you know the ability to customize the taylor jury questionnaires case by case for the prosecution and the defense to uh, try to determine whether or not folks are going to be impartial um Mm. But for this, I mean, even going through one of the questions, here's another question. Were you satisfied or unsatisfied with how police responded? Uh, Leading up to that is asking, like, have you been arrested? Were you satisfied with how the police responded? Following that, have you ever personally seen the police use more force than was needed? Hmm. This is going to disproportionately impact the black community. We are, uh, I think it's 78% more likely in the city of Minneapolis, black and East African people to be pulled over by the police. So we are going to disproportionately have more encounters with law enforcement than our white counterparts. And based on what we have seen, we know that disproportionately our encounters with law enforcement tend to not end well. So, again, like even beyond the Black Lives Matter and the Blue Lives Matter, dissecting that jury questionnaire even further and saying, you know, what was the basis and the premise behind some of these questions? Because if Black people are being honest, we have to reveal that yeah, we felt some type of way that George Floyd got killed. Yes, we've had negative encounters with the police. Yes, we think that changes need to happen with public safety. There's a question on there that also asks, do you think um, sister, uh, systematic racism you know, is a thing or is it um, blown out of proportion basically by the media? How, as a black American... Can you be honest about these answers and still be viewed as impartial?
0: And you know, to your point, Fernando Castillo himself, right, who went to high school with, uh, was pulled over, you know, forty-four times throughout his life. Um, you know, as 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 a direct example of of the kind of uh, proximity and experience to to that that level of of. Um, like the, the being in the lab, right? Being com- constantly aware. So we are investigating and you are constantly under this microscope by being black in this nation, which is one of the core reasons that why the encounter with George Floyd even happened in the first place. And this is showing that. At the same time though, you asked, you said that question about being honest, right? Um, if, you are, if you are black and honest in this, this is working against you. What, in, what is in place to investigate the honesty of folks who are giving neutral answers or trying to say, I see all people, I see all, somehow all lives mattering is a benefit for you in this process and somehow wanting to make true, make that true by focusing on the experience of black lives disqualifies you is a problematic statement, not only for this trial, but it doesn't seem to have the same introspection for high profile cases where the defendant is black. It's another reason why we have this, another way in which we see this this um, this uh treatment. Right. Supposed to supposed supposedly guaranteed under the 14th Amendment. There are two other things have happened this week that kind of underscore this, too. And then, of course, we got some some interesting news. They reinstated this week the third degree murder charge. Um, what what impact do you think that that's going to have on the case?
1: Well, I think that it, it can go two ways. Um, I think that with third degree murder you can, A, either end up with a conviction with a lesser sentence that could be viewed as a slap on the wrist. However, third degree could also mean a conviction instead of no conviction. In the city of Minneapolis, we have seen uh, one officer convicted, which was Mo- Mohammed Noor, and his conviction was third degree murder. So there's a precedent that has been set with, the ability to obtain a conviction of an officer with third with third degree. However, some people feel like the sentencing for that is a slap on the wrist for what happened.
0: And and, and I should say a quote. I'll, I'll pull up. This is uh, Minnesota state statute um, six hundred nine point one nine five. Murder in the third degree states whoever with uh, without intent to affect the death of any person causes the death of another by perpetrating an act imminently dangerous to others and invincing a depraved mind without regard for human life is guilty of murder in the third degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 25 years it also says in the subpart whoever without intent to cause death prox- proximately causes the death of a human being by directly or indirectly unlawfully selling giving away battering delivering, exchanging, distributing, or administering a controlled substance. And so there's a there's a, a, a segment that talks about substance and also a seg- segment that really focuses on imminent danger to others and in invincing a depraved mind, i.e. Um, moving forward um, with something even though you know that it's causing harm. These are the bars to pass for that. And so adding that charge saw many folks be very, very happy for all the reasons that you stated we also saw some folks who um, who were concerned that adding the third degree is an admittance that there's that are, or an admittance that they're not certain that there's going to be a conviction in this case, which caused other anxiety and reverberations to go about. Um, you know, in addition to that third degree being being stated, there was also a conversation about um, around something called spark of life, where um, what how how can we bring in elements of George Floyd's life? And it was very interesting to see the prosecution, who's very clearly signaling that they're going to bring the positive aspects, and the defense, who want Vietnui to be able to bring uh, into it aspects of his life around the drug charges. And so we got a little signal to what the trial might look like and the thing that many people are dreading. Can you talk a little bit about how that was coming across your radar as you saw that happening this week?
1: Well, that was during a a pretrial hearing that they had that discussion. Mm And I think those pre-trial hearings have been the most telling about what to expect from this trial. And in that conversation uh, specifically, you know, when they they talked about having character witnesses come up and talk about who George Floyd was, I remember hearing the judge say specifically that there were certain things that were not going to be allowed to Attack George Floyd's character, and so I immediately became very curious about well, what things had he prohibited from being discussed? Uh, early on, we saw a lot of slander about George Floyd, a lot of uh, past things that he had partaken in come to the forefront front to try to justify uh, why he should have been killed, and hmm. so to hear the judge say that a lot of that's not going to be allowed, but he did say, you know, the information about his drug use uh, will be discussed because he had drugs in his system at the time. So that's a part of the evidence. So I I was um, kind of left with the impression that potentially uh, one of the character witnesses may end up talking about why, why he used drugs. And Hmm. if you have anyone who is a drug user in your life, you usually know that that stems from some trauma. It stems from something that happened in your life uh, that you didn't learn to cope with. And so uh, oftentimes the drugs become a coping mechanism and it takes on a life of its own and whatnot. But so I was kind of under the impression that Uh, You know, maybe the character witness, while they talk about how great of a father he was, they may actually use that as an opportunity to contextualize uh, some of the problems in George Floyd's life, because Hmm. none of us are perfect. And so if the worst things, the worst aspects of ourselves had to be under a microscope and ended up being used to try to paint us out to be... You know, a terrible person without context. You know, so I I, I was left under the impression that uh, they're going to have a character witness who can contextualize anything that the defense could end up saying negative about George Floyd.
0: You know, there was um, you know, and, and I know we're going to get to our guest in just a minute, but the city has settled a twenty seven million dollar settlement um, in a civil in the civil case uh, that George Floyd family has brought against the city of Minneapolis. Um, Can you give us some insights from that? What is, what is that signaling? I know there was a question that one of the people there asked about its impact on the trial, which I thought was very interesting, irrelevant, but very interesting. Um, And so in that settlement, what is that, what, what does that mean? What is that detail? What is that going to cover?
1: $27 million will be the largest settlement for the city of Minneapolis. Uh, I think, Attorney Crump said the largest pre-criminal trial settlement ever in a case like this and $500,000 will be donated from the family to the South side community that was hardest hit by the uh, uprising and a challenge made to the city of Minneapolis to match that $500,000. Now, some folks who are not as familiar with this process thought that that settlement meant the end of the trial, like they settled. But uh, for folks not as familiar with uh, how this works, there's two different types of cases. You have the civil case, which can result in a monetary settlement. And then you have a criminal case, which can convict someone to have to serve time. And so I think attorney Crump said it best is this is the pathways that our judicial system create for us to pursue justice those are the two outcomes justice looks like a civil settlement and criminal charges right whether that will happen on in both sides we'll have to see but I do think in terms of timing it is interesting because typically we don't see the civil settlement happen before the criminal settlement uh, settlement and so I wonder uh, strategically, in terms of public safety and uh, you know the interest of city officials, if having this victory could help balance any type of negative response if we don't see a conviction. And uh, there there were some other interesting questions. Uh, there was a reporter who asked, uh, $27 million. What, I mean, what are you guys going to do with the money? Hmm. And a, saw, Attorney Crump interjected on yeah. behalf of the family and uh, politely said, you know, white families wouldn't be asked that.
0: Mm. I remember that. I heard that.
1: And uh, there was a couple of folks on the live stream who felt like attorney Crump was being rude, but it is it's his legal responsibility to protect his clients. A, a more a more non-formal response would have been none of your business. <laughs> you know, it's its none of your business what the family's going to do with that money. And one of the brothers said, you know, that he'd trade it all back for his brother. Uh, mm-hmm. But just to reiterate, those are the pathways. It's not that the family's money hungry or, you know, did they deserve more than $27 million? Uh But these are the pathways that our judicial system provides for justice.
0: You're listening to Bearing Witness with Anthony in Georgia, Georgia. This show is a production of Racial Reckoning, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's communities in partnership with KMOJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center. For our full conversation, visit racialreckoningmn.org. You know, uh, as we as we as we move to our next segment, one of the things that stood out in response to that was, and I love the way that this was put: the city now has 27 million reasons to not get this wrong like this in the future, and something somewhere's gotta hurt. And, and, and the pocketbooks is somewhat, you know, we don't make change, we don't grow muscle unless we face the hard stuff and and, and, and deal with it in order to be better better suited. I, I've really appreciated your coverage throughout the week. You've gotten me through. And so as we move and um, we get ready for our, our, our next guest, I just gotta say, Miss Georgia, uh, especially as the trial takes breaks and you kind of help contextualize, I've seen a whole lot of folks get a lot of their questions answered by that coverage. If you're listening to Bearing Witness right now, uh, one of the ways that you can stay engaged is to follow Miss Georgia on Facebook, um, to go to our website, racialreckoningmn.org, and follow the coverage along. It has been helpful for me to get a better understanding of what's going on, especially in the midst of all the legalese. And one of the best areas of coverage I've seen all week has been the coverage of Miss Georgia Ford.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: One of the things that happened at the beginning of last week was uh, two rallies downtown at the government center. One, which was a silent march led by uh, Nakima Levy-Pounds and a few other organizers. And one was a prayer rally, um, a gathering of Minnesota clergy who combined and worked it out to to co-share the space in a really awesome and amazing way. Um, But in order to cover this process, cover the city in prayer, Um, Elder Stacy Smith is Uh, The uh, elder for the uh, St. Paul Minneapolis District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church of the Fourth Episcopal District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. She's also oversees the AME churches in in Canada as well uh, as the elder for the Canadian Conference. And she's also the president of the board of directors of the Minnesota Council of Churches. So she comes with a whole lot of experience in a lot of different communities, and has been. You may have heard her um, first leading the silent clergy marches last year, um, in the in the in the heat of some of the unrest that was happening. So she's been really really focused on on galvanizing church communities in response. And so we're glad to have her here, Elder Stacy Smith. Welcome, and thank you for joining our conversation today.
2: Thank you, Anthony and Georgia, for having me this evening.
0: So. You've gotten the chance to listen to uh, me and Miss Georgia kind of recap the events of the week. You know, I know you're heavily involved in trying to help galvanize churches in support of social justice. As you heard us talking and you on the events for the week, what's what has been coming up for you front and center?
2: Wow, um, what's been coming up for me is reliving trauma. I think that has been front and center for me. Um, listening to people talking about their, um, how they feel about this case, um, uh, the disturbance of it all, Um, They were, they were really in prayer for the family. Um, Once again, having to go through the trauma all over again, Um, the community having to go through the trauma all over again. And so it's just, I think a lot, a lot has been around reliving. Um, The other part after reliving is been about what's going to happen. You know, uh, how is this going to turn out? Uh, Is it going, I think a lot of Fairness is, is, you know, people are wondering, is it going to be fair? Uh, Is it going to, uh, is it really going to be a fair and impartial view of this uh, trial? Uh, A lot of people are really concerned about that. Um, And it's my concern as well, you know, really, um, you know, there's so much history, you know, that's kind of hanging on the balance of this case, Um, there's so much uh, attention being focused on this case. The eyes of the world are on Minnesota right now and especially Minneapolis and that government center. And what happens here in Minnesota is gonna determine what happens in the rest of this nation. And in this case is probably we thought that, um, you know, the O.J. Simpson case (laughs) a long time ago was going to be, you know, a breakthrough precedent type case um, in a sense. And it wasn't its own merit. Um, But yet and still we see this same type of of senseless death and trauma continuing to be uh, invaded upon the African-American community at an unprecedented rate. Um, It's just getting insane. It used to be like, you know, you would hear something every now and then, but I think because we're in this digital world now that we're seeing it come to the forefront. Um, And and the pain of it is just almost too much to bear. So what I, I see, what I feel, um, that's happening right now um, is that there's a lot of hope hanging in the air. Um, it, it's palpable. I mean you can you can just you know almost reach out and and touch that there's that hope there. There's that fear there at the same time, it's like what's gonna happen? you know, um, there are, there's the we want the trial to 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 start and and kind of, end quickly. There's others saying, you know, they want to make sure that that when it starts, it, it is truly heard and it takes the time that it needs to be heard. But then there's that background chatter that I'm hearing. It's like, well, a longer that it takes, you know, we're wondering are uh, an antagonizers going to come? Well, you know, I, I just believe that this stuff is going to happen one way or the other. Um, and that uh, we can't fear what's out there, um, what may be lurking in the dark. Uh, I think we need to be upfront with our feelings, um, how we feel about this, um, and not retreat, uh, into, uh, I guess the it's just another one. It's nothing's going to happen. It's a, I, 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 I'm standing on the on prayer. You know, I'm a woman of faith and, and I'm standing on prayer that this is the beginning of a shift that we are going to see um, in our nation. It has to be this case uh i think you know you were talking earlier about the family receiving the settlement and that was kind of something unprecedented that happened that's happened before a trial or that it's never happened before um i think that is maybe a way of saying yep there's another shift that's happening um There's, you know, I I see, you know, like when I spoke earlier about like the O.J. Simpson trial, you know, he was he was um, exonerated or he was found not guilty of the criminal case. And then it went to the civil case. And that's when he was found guilty. Right. Um, But this case, you know, I think you might be right. They might be trying to mitigate some of the things that might be happening, you know, whatever the verdict may be. but once again, I like to try to believe that it's a shift. It's a shift to how things will be handled, how things can be handled, how things should be prosecuted, uh, how, how uh, when the wrong has been done, it needs to be acknowledged. And there needs to be a reparation for that at the same time. So I think the family is, um, it, the, their, no amount of money would ever bring back. Their loved one, you know, and no amount of money is ever going to rectify the wrongs. Uh, however, I think you know this is a start in the right direction. Uh, I think that there is much to be gained by looking at at what's happening here. Um, we we really need to see how. Um, this, this, well, maybe I put it, should put it this way. The family being granted this is going to do good in other places, right? Mm. Um, we're going to, we're going to see other cases happen, you know, cause there's many out there right now, right? There's, there's many cases hand, hanging in the balance and this particular case is going to help to uh prosecute some of the other cases that are out there. So this is a, a right start, I, I I have to say.
1: And Elder Stacy, being a woman of faith, do you see any of of what is playing out as spiritual warfare? You know, in, in thinking, contextualizing, you know, certain chapters in the Bible where you see God dealing with a, a nation. And so I think in a flesh way, a lot of people look at this as a racial reckoning. But I'm curious if if you, in being a faith leader, look at this at all as a spiritual reckoning.
2: Um, I do. I do see it um, as a spiritual reckoning on on many levels. Um, you know, evil can only have its way for so long. Right. Before there's a breakthrough. And um, I believe we're on the cusp of that breakthrough right now. I there's several passages that I can think about, but right now um, I have to go to Genesis, where um, you know Joseph is in Egypt and he's gone through all the trials that he's gone through, of course. But then he becomes in charge of Pharaoh's land, right? He's he's like second in charge to Pharaoh and uh now there's a there's a drought coming and uh he's handing out you know the food and his and his family comes and he they don't recognize him but yet um his his family thinks he's dead and and with that in that story uh there comes a part where joseph reveals himself to his family and they're shocked to find out that it's him. And, and in that shock and awe of finding out that it's, it's, um, it's Joseph, they also realize the wrongs that they put against him. And they become fearful, right? They become fearful that, oh, he's going to do something to us. But Joseph comes up and he says, you know, what, what God? What, um, the, the enemy meant for evil, God's going to turn it to good. And I think that the evil that has been visited upon uh, African-American communities, um, not just recently, we're talking about decades, you know, years, thousands of <laughs> years, uh, hundreds of years in this country, but the, the, the uh, evil that has been uh, put upon us is about to break. Um, I see spiritually, that um, the evil being turned to good is going to be in a place where the shift of reparation. And what I mean by that is that the amending, the repairing, the, the sharing of power Right, um, that we don't have as an African American community right now, or an Indigenous community that we don't have right now. Um, I think that is the shift of the spirit that I see happening because we can't go on this way. We can't we can't be this imbalance because our nation won't be able to take it. Um, I think there's there's the reason we're in this. Place now because we refute the you know the dominant culture refused to share, and they wanted to have us in a place where they could control us. They enslaved us at one point in time, and and still in some degrees we are still enslaved.
0: You know, one of the things that you bring up as you talk about that you know, that that kind of backs up that point um, is the fact that we are examining a jury selection process in ways that we've never been attuned to before. Um, and so, you know, as all these things are being brought to light in the in the heat of the disparity, not just from the pandemic, but, but you know, of course, in this case, uh, against Derek Chauvin and the murder of George Floyd, um, we now have a new set of exposures that can say, all right, if you was on the sidelines before around the inherent biases that are in our even jury selection, now we have, we're seeing it firsthand. Um, and especially, I think, Miss um, Georgia, you reported on this too, um, it, in the fact that we get access to the stream of this process in ways that we usually don't. I don't know what the what the rates are in Minnesota, but we don't usually get to see this trial process going, which is a decision that's been made because, uh, in, in part, because of having to consider um, what the you know in, in plan for the demonstrations the fact that they spent a million dollars in the barricades outside of the front of the government center folks are now worried about the demonstration and one of the things that comes to mind then is okay what has been detrimental to us is now exposing the gaps and the holes in the system i think that backs up your point really well you know you prayed um and the in the pray for mn clergy rally you brought one of the prayers centered around security. And I was wondering, I'm thinking we should take a listen to some of the things that you said in that prayer, because I think um, it, it, it backs up and undergirds some of the things that you just shared. Today, I'm
2: here to begin to pray for the security, of our city,
0: yes. the
2: security of our state, yes. and the security of our nation. Amen. Yes. We'll be heard, Lord God, that the people of Minneapolis, St. Paul, and the state of Minnesota may know that it is peace. They may know that they're secure. They may. There are those, Lord God, who have been crying out for you, O oh God. There are those who have been crying out and lamenting in this time of lit, Lord God, and they have been wailing at the wall, Lord God, calling for you, calling, Lord God, to come in and make a difference, to do something new, to make a new highway, to bring a new peace.
0: You know, there, there's, there was so much in the prayer um, uh, that you that you prayed for. You know, in terms of security for the protesters, just covering everything that we have a process that can lean forward, but the the, the, the core, the the essence that was clear through the entire prayer was that this notion that something different, something shifts, you said it several times, shifts in this atmosphere. And then that part of the clip where you talk about folks are wailing, right? Um, And it it didn't dawn on me, it it should have, (laughs) but I wasn't thinking about the fact that it's Lent, right? The season where we deny ourselves some things to remind ourselves of, of sacrifice, to remind ourselves of, to be thankful for the things that we have around us. And here we are facing a lint where we're wailing for justice, finally. And I think that was such a poignant point in the prayer, um, you know, that folks are wailing for something different to happen. And if you're wailing and you're part of that group wailing, this week in the jury selection might not have given you too much extra to be hopeful about seeing the patterns that we saw. So I'm just curious, you know, as somebody who's responsible for guiding folks to to reconcile the reality of their world as a faith leader. Right. To reconcile themselves. What do you, what are you finding yourself for you? You know, mm-hmm. um, I know there's you're you're covering others, but I'm really curious for folks and leaders like you in the community. How are you wailing? What is coming up for you in that sense in this space?
2: Right. You know, there's a. There's a term called wounded warrior, <laughs> hmm. right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, for me, uh, I have to just stay on the battlefield. You know, uh, there's no giving up. There's, hmm. no, there's no resting. Um, you just got to, I have to just keep on praying. I have to keep on pushing i have to keep on believing i have to keep on trusting that god is about to show up i have to live hmm. in a place of expectation where god is never going to let me down where hmm. god is never not going to show up and in the and if we don't have that hope then something dies in us right and hmm. and that that, that light goes out and and i want my fire to always burn and burn bright and the way i keep that fire fueled is with the oil of of prayer and and the power of the holy spirit and and i think that's the way a lot of spiritual leaders and and that's how we stay fueled in in our beliefs and 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 our hope and how we can lead others because when we allow darkness to overtake us, right, then that's as good as saying the enemy's won. And I'm never gonna relent for that. (laughs) I'm never gonna let the enemy win. So I have to keep my light going because if it's only a little small match that's burning in the darkness, the light is still seen no matter how dark it gets, right? and so i and and that little light is still there then people can find it right people are can find that light in the dark and then they have hope that they can find their way through it so i think you know for me i i have to keep bathing myself in that consistent prayer you know and and it's not about you know constantly always being on my knees. I pray, I'm praying right now as I'm talking to you all, (laughs) (laughs) right? So, you know, it's, it's about the fact that um, I I can keep myself fueled with that, with that light so that it can be seen, so it can be shared, so it can comfort, that it can guide, it can lead, it can, you know, cover uh, a city, it can cover a state, it can cover a nation. It can cover a world. You know, I have to believe that my prayers, you know, are strong enough to put people on my back and carry them when they can't carry themselves. Right. So mm. as a leader, as, as a spiritual leader, and as a leader, that's where I, that's where I gain my power, my strength, because God in me is greater than he that's in the world. So I carry that belief everywhere I go. And therefore it has to show up and show up big, <laughs> mm. you know. Mm. Um, so you know, I when you play the the uh the prayer that I prayed, that's the first time, you know, that I've heard it. Um and and a lot of times when I'm in the midst of prayer, because I didn't write the prayer out, you know, I'm just allowing the spirit to use me in that moment and hearing that part about wailing, right? Um, I didn't even realize that I really kind of said that you know so thank you um but but uh but it's true because it came it came from a part of prayer that um in my in my prayer closet in my war room uh I'm wailing I'm I'm wailing at the wall I'm 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 crying out to God for a change I'm crying out for those who who can't cry anymore <laughs> I'm crying out for those who, who are just tired of crying. They just, I, I can't cry anymore. So I'm, I'm crying for them. I'm, I'm wailing for them. The Wailing is way beyond crying. It's just, it's a moan. It's a groan. It's a deep uttering. It's a, it's a place where you don't even know what to say anymore, but it's that rock. It's that, you know, it's that place where, you, you know, you're just giving it over. You're just giving it over. And um, I've been there. I'm there all the time, you know, in in my, in my closet, you know, I'm there and I'm there for the, for the Floyd family. You know, I, I'm there for the community. I'm there for those, you know, a lot of people don't talk about the people who were the actual eyewitnesses, Mm. you know, I'm wailing for them because that was a trauma that I can't even begin to wrap my mind around. Right.
1: Yeah. One of them was nine years old. Yes. Mm.
2: And a matter of fact, when um, when when uh, uh, the, the all the, the meetings and things started happening and I think it was at the meeting that Al Sharpton where he came and um, and and uh, the young boy asked Al Sharpton, he says, he says, Reverend Sharpton, he says, how can I? And I think he said, I'm 15. And he says, I went home and I watched that video over and over and over. He says, I must've watched it like 30 times. And he says, and each time that I watched it, I became more afraid. And he says, "I, I don't know how to stop being afraid that my life is gonna end at any moment. And it was that young man that I heard him say that. And I cry out for that young man. Who's crying out for him? You know, um, I cry out for the people who were standing around watching this and felt helpless, helpless to do anything because they know if they acted, it would be even more of a scene than what was already happening, you know, or and or they felt paralyzed because they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Right so i i'm i'm crying out i'm wailing i'm wailing for a justice system that is yet to be a honest a honest system that we all deserve right Hmm. i'm wailing out for that i'm wailing out for for a place where where or a time that we can see that races can get along right we're not going to change our skin colors you know um Hopefully tomorrow when I wake up I'm still gonna be a black woman. <laughs> you,
0: know? you said hopefully. <laughs> I'm saying hopefully wake up,
2: baby. That's what I'm saying. Hopefully wake up. Some you things know, don't but, change, you know. Right. <laughs> I can't change the color of my skin. Mm. So and 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 white people can't change the color of their skin. We are who we are. We are born to the station of where we're born, but it doesn't mean that we have to be. Um, we can't get along. We we're we're it's like we're fighting for the same piece of cheese, and, and and you know, and and we're gonna see who gets there first. You know, it, it, it's it's a horrible place.
0: There, there was a powerful moment at the after the rally, um, and 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 I gotta underscore in um, you know one thing that happened is that the rallies, there was a rally in a silent march, and, and there wasn't really coordination ahead of time, and there was a powerful moment where folks are like, okay, wait, we're in the same place, and two things are about to happen. How do we? How do we do that? And you and and Bishop Howell from, uh, went over to talk with Nakima, and you worked it out in a way that now the clergy opened up the silent march and covered that. And then when the silent march concluded, Nakima was able to come back over and kind of give, uh, there were two benedictions, but she kind of gave the the benediction, benediction <laughs> to, yeah. to, 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 to focus it. And I thought that it was an amazing moment of solidarity, regardless of kind of how you saw that scene happen. To see that unity. Yeah. And and, and there's a powerful moment after the whole thing ended where you and the pastors, there were AMU Church pastors around. Just that I noticed, there was a lot of hands that reached out. But I look up and all of a sudden, pastors have surrounded the Kima and 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 I think it was it was Pastor uh, Richard Coleman of Wayman A.M.E. Church. He just hugged her up, just super gripped her yeah. up. And yeah. y'all were praying over her, and there was just this power of covering because. And and, and and what I loved about it is there was this understanding that regardless of what happens here, there should there, there needs to be something covered. <laughs> there needs to be some covering on folks who are on the front line, and this it seemed almost like a a reunification of of boots on the ground and the churches that used to be their convening spaces a little bit more overtly. Um, I just thought that was a powerful moment. And so as I hear you talk, I'm I'm sitting here looking at all these things that are happening on the ground. And it seems to me, as I'm sitting here with two powerful women who are voices in this work, um, it seems to me that there's a whole lot of critical consciousness that I would want to have on a jury making decisions. And unfortunately, the same level of consciousness and reflective thought an experience that you are outlining here as assets are the same things that are disqualifying folks who seem to be demonstrating the same thing from being selected in the jury. And I'm just curious to to, to as you as you are encountering this daily in and and, and I I'm, I'm wondering this for you too Ms. Georgia because it's the same way that I hear Elder Stacy talking about her witness. I'm watching your witness in in the actual trial proceeding spaces. I'm just wondering as we as we think about leaving you know our, our audience with something how are you being you in this moment and and as we close as we as we get ready to close that's the question that we that we are introdu as our kind of becoming a tradition in bearing witness now how are you being you given all that we've talked about today in this moment
2: wow um how am i being me well you know you said something really um that that touched something for me when you talked about at the prayer rally and at the silent march that uh, Nakima led, and and it was for the first time when when I talk about shift, to me that was a shift, that was a powerful shift, um, because we saw uh, the the activism movement come alongside with the church and the church came alongside with the activism movement. And before it's been kind of very separate, right? And I saw something shift and powerfully happen that it became one voice that day. One voice on one accord. Um, and and I thought that was a powerful thing. And I thought what was more powerful was Nakima giving the, the true benediction, at the end. And you were right, it was the benediction because it was like the drop the mic moment, you know, but at the also at the time too, the love that we had for her and we wanted to share with her because we a lot of us um you know have been sharing that from afar. So I I I was so excited to be able to touch her and pray for her and lay hands on her and 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 love on her and support her in that moment. And, um, and allow her to know that, hey, there's an army ready to stand with you and, and move forward with you. And so we're at the ready. And I think it was, we saw that shift happen. Um, and it was a beautiful moment where there was this uh, coming together. And I, and I loved it. And I think a lot of people may have missed that. Um, but I think in the spirit, that's how it, it showed up. Right. And for me showing up in this time, um, I I continue my work. You know, I I continue to try to be that voice out there somehow or another that's singing the narrative of truth um, and and singing the narrative of that. There needs to be reparations out there, too. Right. So as part of the Minnesota Council of Churches, you know, one of the things that we're leading up now is truth and reparations. And this is a ten-year project that we're we're looking into to now to begin to look at uh, African American and Indigenous uh, or Native American tribes and how you know things have been inequitable for for us, right? And so now we're looking at the church once again, leading in an area where of activism where we haven't been before. So as the uh, president of the board of the Minnesota Council of Churches, I'm excited to lead uh, with uh, the Council of Churches in this area where we have not shown up before. This is another form of activism that the church is now taking part of. We, we think of activism like in the civil rights era, but now, we, this is a whole new era, right? Another shift that has taken place um, in in the in the church or the religious community. So I'm I'm really excited about how I'm going to be showing up, maybe now and even more so in the future. Not only as presiding elder, but I'm also a pastor of St. James African Methodist Episcopal Church in Saint Paul. I show up there. I show up in the community. I show up in many places, but I'm really excited about what is happening now because now it's a time that these things are going to be happening. We're hearing more about reparations each and every day. We're hearing more about truth telling. We're hearing more about land acknowledgements. We're hearing more about these things. So these are the things that are beginning to bubble up and be the groundswell of what is to come. And I'm just excited to be able to show up (laughs) in these areas
1: even before I was just going to say, Elder Stacy, you know, I just want to thank you so much um, for for sharing and for your do- devotion and obedience to your faith. And, you know, it's just reminded me how we're we're living in the prayers of our ancestors. And now more than ever, it's so important for us to stand on the promises of God. I'm reminded of a scripture that talks about you know, how God has the power to transform despair into joy, you know, grief and in, grief into joy, despair into hope, uh, injustice into justice and. um And I think we're all in a place where we're fighting and, you know, that saying, give it to God, just give it to God and let him do the heavy heavy lifting in this moment, you know. Um, So thank you. Thank you for your devotion and and your obedience. For me, how I'm being mean in in this moment, you know, I think at earlier times in my career, I didn't know what my role was in the revolution. You know, you see the activists, you see the faith leaders, you see the musicians and the spoken word artists and the dancers and, you know, everyone has their role. And as a storyteller, I find myself at a place where my role is very critical right now to disseminate information, to break down and contextualize uh, the nuances of of what are happening to uh, bring people um, information in a way that they can understand it. When you're talking about court proceedings, it's a lot of legal jargon that people are not familiar with. And so, I am being me in this moment by waking up every day and being a storyteller.
0: Ever since Ahmaud Aubrey um, was was assaulted by quote unquote community members enacting their 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 quote unquote justice on him, right? Um and I remember running with my son for the 2.23 miles. And it, it was hard. But in that run, in that, in that move, I had to in that moment explain to my son the complexity that requires us to not only mark this moment, but then to ask him the question, Am I safe? And in my father, in that moment, My heart broke because I could not tell him yes. Instead, I had to treat that moment like I treat any moment when we go camping in the wilderness and say that I can't guarantee that you are 100 unequivocally percent safe from your life ending. But let me prepare you for the event of a bear. Let me prepare you for getting lost. Let me prepare you for all the ways that can prolong your encounter and help you better survive your encounter. And I'm reminded in this moment how I'm being me is finding myself having to think about as a parent reconciling what they saw this week. And that was to be conscious means that I might not be able to perform my duty as a citizen of the United States because of the consciousness that is in me. And it was in having that conversation to kids who I did not think were listening to the background while I was watching the live stream and watching your coverage, Georgia, come to me with those questions in between the video games, in between the ways we're trying to cope with this moment. And instead of at the end of that, my heart breaking like it did when we first ran our first 2.23 miles, instead this time I find myself saying, all right, here's how we're going to make sense of this moment. And that was a shift for me. And so that word shift, Elder Station, that you brought into this mix is so poignant right now um, that regardless of the outcomes, I am proud and happy for the exposure that we get to do, the consciousness we get to raise. And as we, you know, I want to thank you for joining us today and bringing that that wisdom, bringing that perspective and allowing us to engage and see how you're making sense of the world throughout this week. Um, before we get to the quote that Miss Georgia you named in the first episode and that we're gonna end every episode with, um, I want to I, I want to just uh, take the time to say that this series airs weekly on Mondays on KMOJ. You can catch the daily updates with Miss Georgia and the reporting team throughout the week on KMOJ and at the website racialreckoningmn.org. In case you want to continue to follow along with the coverage, get the proper context, and of course come in and check in with us. Um, on bearing witness to help try to make sense of it and check in with members of our community. Um, It is clear to me that regardless of how the jury selection goes, that we have something to examine. And that is the notion that our critical consciousness, our wise reflection on the conditions of our society, often get held up against us when it comes to participating in in the correction or the shift that we need to make. And I just have this to say to to those in the village, to borrow, you know, to, to borrow from Ms. Lisa Jones, to stay conscious. And even though that consciousness is going to come with some of the challenges of our society, that consciousness has also brought us through many of the hard moments in our history. So I'll give it to you, Ms. Georgia, to wrap us up. What is the quote that we we got to remember?
1: In the words of Dr. Joy, "May the revolution
0: be healing." Thank you for listening to Bearing Witness.
1: This is Bearing Witness with Anthony in Georgia. This show is a production of Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, in partnership with KMLJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center. For our full conversation, visit racialreckoningmn.org.